Hey everyone, I'm Patrick Genova. And I'm Lamisha. And on behalf of the New England Youth and Family Team, we wanted to create this podcast designed for parents in our youth and family ministry. This is designed to be a library of recorded sermons, devotionals, and some additional tools for parents. We also will post teen lessons so you can have great conversations with your teen. We love you all so much, and we pray this resource assists you as you take on the tall task of spiritual formation in your children. So then we can be a blessing for our kids as well. Um, God has certainly blessed all of us. Uh, he has given us a full quiver, uh, some like very full with, with many kids, some very full with just one very full kid. Uh, uh, and so... Um, but our goal is to, you know, we've been given this incredible gift, and we want to do our best to be able to help point and guide our kids to God to have the best opportunity and chance to understand how they've been created and what they've been created for. And so, uh, so I'm really looking forward today uh, to be able to, uh, to help uh, in, in my own heart, but also uh, as I lead my family as well. Let's go ahead and pray at this time, and then uh, Tim and Jennifer will come up. They're from San Diego. Uh, so it's great to have them out here. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed seeing the, the uh, trees clapping, uh, changing colors, uh, doing uh, different things. Um, glad you get to see that. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we are so, so grateful to be your sons and daughters, God. Thank you so much for creating us, and not just creating us and setting us aside, but creating us and desiring to have a relationship with us, Father, walking with us showing grace on us, welcoming us in continually, Father. We're so grateful. Thank you for being the perfect Father for each and every one of us. Father, thank you so much for bestowing so many blessings on us, the blessing of sex, the blessing of being able to have intimacy with others, the blessing of being able to create image bearers is so amazing and unlike any other thing, Father. And we're so grateful that you've bestowed that on us. But then you've given us incredible gifts in having children. And Father, we want to do our best to be like you and to help them to understand how they were created and why they were created, what they were created for, Father. God, I pray that we will have open hearts and open minds today, that no matter what our personal background is or was, uh, no matter where we're at, even in the stages and, and ages of our kids, that we will seek to listen to your voice and that your voice will be very clear to us and that you will create a clear path for us as well as we seek to equip and to, uh, to, help, to help our kids to really not be afraid, to, but to really celebrate what it is that you've created for each and every one of us, God. We thank you so much for Tim and for Jennifer, for the way that they've loved you, for the way that they've served your church, uh, not only in San Diego, but have, have taken these gifts and blessings and are now being a blessing to so many others uh, around the country and around the world, Father. Again, open our hearts, open our minds, speak to us powerfully today. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's give it up for the Consens. Amen. It's a blessing just to be back. Um, I think when Jennifer was setting this up, she timed it for when the leaves were turning. I did. Um, so she manipulated the situation. Um, no, that really, how it worked out in our schedule. Um, but she ha actually has never seen a fall. Never. You know, I grew up in Indiana, so, the, you know, I'm like, it's commonplace. You know, it was, you know, I grew up in Brown County, which is rolling hills. It's beautiful in the fall, but she's never seen that. And I'm so, so, excited. so we're going to spend a couple of days after this to, to just drive and, and I'll be smiling 
there as well as I'm driving and saying, yeah, isn't this beautiful, honey? Isn't this great? Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Well, it's great just to be here to talk. Um, I'm going to talk briefly because what you want to hear is really from my wife, her specialty. She's amazing in regards to um, um, her knowledge and even her practice in, in what she does. And But actually, when we do teach um, parenting classes, we talk a lot about sex. And we have a whole series of parenting classes that are about, what, six or seven weeks long, a couple hours each. Not all on sex. Just Not all on sex, right. Just on, you know. And so we actually do a lot of parenting. We've been doing t- parenting classes for 15, 20 years now. 20, 20 years. And, and we're actually going to write a book someday. And they're, okay. the, they're the practicals. Okay, I'm an engineer, okay? I'm not into the, the psychology. I had to have one psychology class, and I saved it as my last class. It was called a Maymester, four weeks. How quickly can I condense this to just be done with the requirement? Check, okay? And so that was my background. Um, but it's now as you get older, you learn that, okay, yeah, I guess there is a lot of mental things that we bit. deal with. So um, I won't talk too much here on that. So here, let's just jump right in. Um, and so what are we going to talk about? So this is it. This is it. Birds and the bees. Okay. What? So what? We're gonna, so let's talk about that. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at God's view of sexuality. You know, we're not going to look at, and we're going to look at how did sexual, how is sexual development? And Jennifer will get into this. And I'll look at the God's view of sexuality. And that's where I'll sit down. Okay. And actually, I'm going to go out because I want to talk with Mike here briefly. Um, <laughs> But it's, it's awesome. So I always like to have, as an engineer, what's my agenda? And that's what this is. Negative events in um, psychosexual development. We're going to have the talk. Jennifer, do that. And we're going to look at challenging topics about pornography, same-sex attraction. You know, a lot of uh, buzzwords there. Um, purity and holiness. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay. And then uh, great conviction. So here it says... I just had the facts of talk with our son. I can't believe what I learned. You know, and you guys can probably remember that when that happened with you when you were in grade school and you came home, you didn't talk to your parents about this stuff and just how you felt more informed than your parents. And our kids are now doing the same thing today. So I'm going to look at really the... So this part, um, this next part, um, we did talk about it a couple weeks ago, and if you were here last night, Jennifer did a brief, so I'm going to do a very high level on this, and then that's when I will step down off stage. So we're going to look at what's the spiritual view of sex from a biblical perspective. So it says sexuality is designed by God as a way to know God more fully. So we look at Ezekiel 16 and 23, and God uses um, sexual language. Now what's going on there? is Israel has now started worshiping idols. They started um, just become idol worshipers. And so God says he started using sexual language to describe how it made him feel. Because he knew that as sexual beings, we would get that. And so he uses in Ezekiel 16 and 23 very explicit words uh, about um, um, their bosoms, their breasts, he talks about genitals of donkeys, emissions of horses are in Ezekiel 23. I mean, amazing, very graphic words. And he does that because he wants to grab our attention and for us to see that he wants to know us. 
And, and to know us, we're going to look at a couple things about to know it. So in the Greek, in the New Testament, is the word gnosko. The word gnosko, in Matthew 1, 25, here's Joseph. Joseph did not know her until she brought forth her son. In other translations, it said he didn't have um, um, what, sexual relations with Mary. So they didn't have that intimate bonding which occurs during sexual, the sexual act of intercourse. They did not have that, Joseph and Mary. So this is the word gnosko. Until after Jesus was born, then we know that he had other brothers and sisters. And then in John 10, it says, um, I know the sheep and my sheep know me as the Father knows me and I knew the Father. So we know, okay, how well does Jesus know God? Well, you know, John 1, he was God. John, further down, he became God in the flesh, Jesus. So we know that God and Jesus know each other quite well. We also know in the scriptures it talks about that God knew you guys. And when did he know you? When he knit you in your mother's womb, just like our children. So he knows you very intimately. Jesus knows God very intimately. And that's where he's talking about here where the, the sheep know my voice. So the same word to know, where the relationship Jesus, God, Jesus, or God in us, and then also Jesus knew us. You know, we are his sheep. That's where Jesus was referring to this. So the same word to know he uses in the sexual relationship between Joseph and Mary. And so it's, it's a very intimate thing that God intended that when we have this intimate relationship with God, it's going to help make us good choices. It's going to guard and guide us. We're going to look at some more of that here. So also, let's go back to the Hebrew now. We're going to look in, in Genesis. And in Genesis 4, verse 1, the word here is yada. And so here in the Hebrew, the yada is the exact meaning as what we saw in Gnosko, to know, the intimate to know. So here we knew Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So this intimate knowing here in the, in the, the relationship, their marital relationship, was very intimate. So the same word that we saw in Gnosko. So here's how God's whole plan is for intimate relationship between the marriage and between and with him. And then as we look in Jeremiah 31, 34, it says, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. He's going to put it on their hearts. You know, and so knowing God, what's it, what is it going to do? So as we have this sexual, or not sexual, sorry, this intimate relationship with God, and we're so close to him, and we feel him, we know the spirit one is in us, right? So we got his spirit inside of us. That's going to help guard and guide our sexuality and our choices. And in Romans 1, in verse 22 through 24, it says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. You know, in here, maybe some of you guys, that was you. That was definitely me in my BC days. I was, not, I was a depraved mind, not knowing I was depraved in my mind, but I was. And, you know, and I didn't become a disciple until I was 27. And it's, but God protected me. But this is where he says, this is what I do. People just go after their own fleshly desires and what they think is right without God guarding and guiding them. And then in Thessalonians um, uh, um, 1, whoops, wrong way. 
First uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verse 3 through 5, it says, The heathen who do not know God give their bodies to sexual immorality. That was me. I did not know God. I had, uh, you know, 1 Timothy 3 talks about having a form of godliness, yet denying its power. That was me. I, had, was a, I grew up religious, was very involved in, in organizations, but I didn't know God. I didn't have a relationship with him. I had knowledge. Knowledge and wisdom and uh, relationship are two different things. And that, so that was me. And so he's saying the same word to know, is that he wants us, and all these words I'm looking here about to know is the same gnosko, same exact word. So let's look at God's view of sexuality. Um, so um, your own convictions about sexuality and the view of, in the, about the spiritual view of sex. And do you want to talk to some of this? Okay. Yeah, you know, we often, so Tim's really shared, oh yeah, I'm moving to there. Um, this is one theology of sexuality, that whole idea of to know, which is that deep, intimate knowing. When you actually look at the scriptures, that really is an overarching understanding of God's intent for sexuality in the marital relationships. We often, though, as disciples, don't always have our theology of sexuality. Like, how much do we really know about what the scriptures teach? My daughter um, texted from, I was just talking about this with the, 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 yeah. the campus students. She was 19, 20. She was in Africa serving at an orphanage. And she texts me, hey, mom, I have a question. Like, what exactly do the scriptures teach about waiting to have sex before you're married? Now, mind you, she's halfway across the world, and she was, she was working with a secular orphanage. And I'm thinking, why are you asking this? <laughs> so she yeah, responds. This wasn't, this wasn't hope related. This, this wasn't was hope. something was she a, did on her yeah. own. And um, I said, so who are you asking for? <laughs> and she says, ha, ha. <laughs> actually some of the girls I work with because she had not yet engaged sexually and they had and they're like why haven't you and she wanted to know what scriptures to answer them with I was like okay here you go um actually some of the moms that are close to us asked me later so what were those scriptures because the reality is we're not always sure how to answer those questions so the first place I would say in helping your children is sharpening deepening your own understanding of sexuality biblically. If we want to be helpful to our kids, are we able to answer them the way we should? Well, the way we would be able to do that is if we've done our own digging, how our own marriages are going. The best thing, okay, so we sell two books. We sell Redeemed Sexuality and we sell right now and The Art of Intimate Marriage. And so when I teach, when we teach a class like this, the parents all want to buy like five copies of Redeemed Sexuality, which is a book for parents and teens and singles on campus on how to live out your sexuality if you're not going to be erotically involved sexually with someone. And so parents are like, great, we'll buy five copies of that. <laughs> I'm like, that's awesome. But what I actually do first is buy the married book and work on you. Now, I'm not saying you can buy both. We'd love to give you both. Right. But... That, the reason I say that is because where we have to start is with our own marriages. Because there's usually, not just our own marriages, but our own sexuality. 
We wrote the book, Reading Sexuality, for Campus Singles and Teens. We had written the married one, and we have four kids. And, oh, we don't even have a picture of our kids up here. Oops, got that. I have, we have four kids. They are all adults now. They're 24, 22, 20, and 18. And um, they would have all of their friends over while we were writing this book. And they would say, so, Mrs. Conzin, um, how come you, like, have a book for all the marrieds but not for us? What about us? And I was like, that's a good question. And hence, the redeemed sexuality came out. And the reality is I have had more adults, uh, married adults, reading redeemed sexuality for themselves. It goes into a lot more detail on background and sexual abuse and the way you grew up in thinking about sexuality. And the reason why I mention that is because sometimes we have to do our own digging on our backgrounds in our family of origins. We have to do our own digging on our understanding scripturally so that then we're in a much better spot to have that conversation with our kids. So, so we see here where God uses sexuality, as we talked about, as a language between us and him so that we can know him. Again, be closer to him. So God speaks and interacts with us intimately. So here in, in Isaiah 43, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. He, he talks in Deuteronomy 32. He goes, you're beloved. These are his words. He holds our hand. He, we're engraved on the palms of his hand. Um, he carries us in his arms, close to his heart. This is how God's view of you is, and he loves you. Um, and Song of Solomon, you know, Song of Solomon is a whole book about sex, right? You know that it is the only world biblical book that has a whole book on sex in the whole world. None of the other religions have it. Okay, that's how much God views sex as positive, mm -hmm. that he means for it to be amazing mm -hmm. and very intimate between a married couple, and that he gave us a whole book to help us with that. Uh, here's some other scriptures. Um, yeah, go ahead. These are not scriptures on sexuality that we're going to go over, but more when you do talk with your kids, yeah. how to talk with your kids yeah. overall. So this is the first one's for us dads. Actually, I think they put that in there for me. Um, <laughs> fathers, do not exasperate your children. And that's, a, and that's a great one just to camp on. Yeah. Because we might get frustrated or we might not know what to say or how to say it. So, but don't exasperate your children. Get informed. That's why I preach about you taking your mm -hmm. part of your Saturday afternoon <laughs> to come learn about how to be better parents. Mm -hmm. That shows a lot that you love your children you love those in your in your circle of influence. Mm -hmm. and you just want to help people. And that just says a lot about you and your own place with God. And I, I appreciate that. Titus 2, 4, it says, Train the young women to love their husbands and children. So the highlighted words in each of these scriptures um, are highlighted on purpose. On the tone and heart with which we go into conversations with our kids not exasperated, and not doing things that are exasperating. Also, that it takes training. Train the younger women to love their husband. We need to be trained. We need to be trained. And then when we're with our children, instead of pounding them with the scriptures, it's a training, it's a teaching. And that's just an important word to pay attention to, the training. It's a, it's, it's a bit more of a patient word. And you'll be doing that until they're 
50. <laughs> right? For those of us with adult children, it's like you're going to be helping. think it was over the whole parenting thing, but honestly, the, it's not. The training, the exasperation, the patience. That's what and I do. And then you're going to be training your grandchildren. So Right. right? Yeah, grandchildren. So amen. Or are. So here's Ephesians 4:15. It says speak the truth in love. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is um, rebuke your neighbor frankly. You know, so being frank, what I have to guard is my face. What does my face look like? You did what? You you did you went where? Mm-hmm. You know, those kind of tones and voices in the face. You gotta be, I gotta try to be more poised like my wife. She's <laughs> when she's in her office. And you know, just like because she hears quite amazing things. Um, just to how to be, okay, wow, okay. But just to speak the truth in love and be frank. Mm-hmm. Um, now the scripture here. Psalm 139, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Mm-hmm. Great scripture to hang on. Um, and 2 Corinthians 6, 13, open wide your hearts. So you look at all those bold. You see, do not exasperate, uh, don't exasperate. Train, speak the truth in love. Be frank and you're made and open wide your hearts. Hear what we're saying. And this part on how we're made is honestly a part of what we have to talk about openly and honestly is the physiology of sexuality. So we are amazingly made how God created our bodies. I'm going to go over that a little bit more, but that's an important part of how to talk to your kids is that the frankness, the word frank here in the Hebrew means open and direct. So we do need to be open and direct with our kids. Sometimes the question is, how open and direct and how frank should we be? Should I say the details to my kid about my background? Should, you know, like how much detail should I go into? How blunt should I be? Obviously, there's going to be age-appropriate differences. For those of you with younger kids, you're not going to maybe go into the, like, you know, they're four and five. You're not going to maybe go into the same detail that you're going to go into with a 14 or 15-year-old. However, the same idea applies about openness and frankness so yeah and actually for i'm a guy that likes to give me just give me the outline (laughs) so i can follow the outline here's here's the the process okay we actually define it in our book okay and we actually reference other books to use for age appropriate okay between Mm -hmm. three to five five to seven things like that so that's how i think i like to have it written out for me okay then you want to take it from here? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to step down off stage. You have my amazing wife right now, and she will take you <laughs> the rest of the afternoon. Thank you. <laughs> it actually is really fun when we have the opportunity, which isn't always the case, but we try to when we travel to do it together because even though this is what I do professionally, this is what we do together as a couple. We together have talked with our kids about sex. We together, um, it is probably one of the biggest strengths of our marriage is that we're pretty unified on all of this stuff. And so I would really encourage you um, on a marital end, if you are married, if you're not, um, having close friends who um, you are parenting together with. We need partnership in our parenting. So that being said, those scriptures that we just used, ultimately what we're trying to say is <laughs> don't use the Bible as a club, you know, hitting them over the head <laughs> with it. We do need to use the scriptures, you know, as our children have taken different turns, 
sexually, made choices that were not great choices, we have definitely used the scriptures in talking to them about it. It's the manner in which you do it. Using the scriptures is there's nothing better than to use the scriptures. But if we only use the scriptures when we're trying to tell them what not to do, instead of the heart we should have, then the only tone we're using is corrective and rebuking and negative, in a sense. And so we need to also learn how to graciously respond when they blow it, with humility, how to um, teach and train with patience. So yes, we need to use the scriptures, but not just correctively. We know this in discipling, all right? We shouldn't just only pound somebody with the scripture when they've blown it all the more so with our kids. So we'll go into some other pieces on that, on how to, to not be condemning um, when they're confessing their sin, but that's just a start. So first of all, how's your own? Remember Tim said that the overarching view of sexuality in the Bible is based on this idea of to know, that deep, intimate knowing of God. So how's yours? Ground yours, not just in coming to church and reading your Bible, Ground your knowledge of God in who he is and what he's like. His character, not just how to obey his rules, but who is he? What's he feel like? Do you know his emotions? I actually spent one chunk of time going through Psalms and underlining every verb it used about God, everything he did, and then any word that showed his emotional state. And I tell you, I got done with that, and I'm like, I I just didn't know these things about him. Like, we need to get to know somebody, right, when we want to be close to them. How much more should we do that with God? So how, first of all, are things between you and God? Do How well is your knowing of him? And then, like I said, going over your own sexual background. Then, when it comes to your own life, if you're going to be teaching and training your kids, this is just that age-old adage that as parents... Do they see us being taught and trained? You know, um, our kids, <sighs> there's four of them, and they're all rather strong-willed. And <laughs> when uh, there was a point at which one of our uh, older kids, when he was in his teen years, can I go see this movie? The answer was an absolute no. And he came up to me later, and he said, Mom, can you ask some advice about that? And I was like, No. No, I did. I said yes. But in my heart, I was like, no, that movie is bad. You're not going. And so I called a couple of the women who disciple me, and I said, what do you think about this? This is what I answered. And they're like, yeah, you know, I think that's probably a good choice. You know, I'm like, cool. I got verified, right? I got a call from both of them about 10 minutes later. So actually, I talked with my husband, and this is his input that he's kind of at the age where he has to start thinking through this. This is what we would recommend. Sit down and share the scriptures with him about what your concerns are. Tell him what those are. And then talk with him after the movie. And, and I'm thinking, this is not the answer I wanted. So I told my son, okay. I still actually don't think he should have gone to that movie. Telling you the truth. But anyway... What it does, though, when they see you under authority, 
it just helps when you have to be the authority or the person teaching them the tough stuff. So how is your own discipleship going? Do they see you actively getting input and getting help, both in how you're running your life and in your character and in how you are parenting them? So let them see you be a learner. It'll help them. So our, our oldest is, um, does anybody know my kids? Okay, so I said something in the campus meeting, and I said, so my son, this isn't being recorded, is it? I said, my son is ab about to ask uh, his girlfriend to marry him, and then I went, because oh, one of the girls goes, oh, yes, and I was like, you know him? Don't tell anybody. <laughs> I was like, don't say anything. Oh, my gosh, this isn't being recorded, right? Um, so we're in a new phase ourselves, and it's just been so much fun to have him come and say, hey, about their own, they, their goal of being pure until they get married, you know, like, and how fun to be able to have those conversations. And I tell you, <laughs> we fought really hard to create openness between us and them around sexuality, and our kids have not always made great choices. But I think uh, the choice that we've had to make through the years is that when we've had different struggles, even in our marriage, we made a decision that they would know about those struggles. And we shared some of those specifics with them. And so when it came time where they have struggled as adults, they've come and talked to us. And I don't know what all has made that possible. And you, we, can, we all have different stories. I do think, though, they saw us under discipline for our wrong choices. They saw us struggle through those challenges. And we were open with it. And so then when their cha own challenges came up, even as adults, some of you have adult kids, so I know that <laughs> Chris was saying, I don't know if you realize, I actually told people they could come to this class where their kids are zero to 24, and I'm like, yep, you know, 25, because the parenting doesn't stop, right, when they leave your home. So how are they seeing you taking input and getting help? Well, let's talk about just some of the practicals on understanding the development of sexuality in um, the, so I'm a researcher, and one of my areas of specialty is in sexual development. And um, understanding development is helpful because then when children, younger ones to older ones, start doing different things, we can kind of figure out where it fits in what's normal, right? Because people will often ask me, is this normal for a kid to do this? And how do I respond to it if it is? Um, while they are infants, that's the very beginning of sexuality. So they are becoming an XY or an XX, right? Or if there's anything that goes wrong in the womb or in the splitting of the DNA and all of the processes of that fetal development, then they might have an XXY or an XYY chromosomes. So that would mean that there could be all kinds of different development of their sexual organs that would be different than the most common. And so in the womb, sexuality is already developing. And in fact, even in the womb, a fetus, a, a, a baby, will touch themselves um, sometimes. You'll see children, especially with boys, just because the penis is sticking out, you'll actually see children that have their little baby hands um, touching their genitals, even pre-birth. Most of the time, though, the first thing a parent will see is at birth. So as a baby is born, the hormones surge through the body, and the genitals are usually quite large. Because of the surge of hormones, the um, 
scrotum and testicles and all the tissue around the genitals will be the lips of the female. Sometimes they, they're like, I'm not quite sure what I'm seeing here, if it's a female or a, if it's a boy, because the, the lips, the labia of the vagina can sometimes be so engorged that they almost look like testicles. Actually, originally, before they became girl or boy, those parts of the body were the same. So they can be a little hard to tell because hormones flush in at birth. Um, so you've got that. Hormones are very, very involved in sexual development. And then again, as that child matures, you'll have young babies who, if they've already begun, sexual touch isn't really sexual when they're little. It's a self-soothing, like it's a thumb sucking. So you'll have very small children that have their hands at their crotch at the, somewhere in the pelvic floor because it's literally soothing to the body. So that'll happen super early on. And then as they become toddlers and they become a much, much more aware of what their hands are touching and what's dangling from that boy and why does that girl not have that? And daddy's got that, but mommy doesn't. And she sits this way and he stands. And so they, they, they wonder, right? And in preschool, they're hilarious. Like who's peeing and how are they peeing? They are fascinated by peeing. And so all of those questions are actually quite healthy during those years. Um, I get calls frequently from parents that are like, my children are this age and this age, should they still be taking baths together? My children are this age and this age, should we be having them um, be more modest and not walk around naked? When does daddy stop taking showers with the kids? When does mommy stop walking around with, uh, without as much clothing with the kids? So when... And this is a cultural piece, is part of it. So I don't really have a specific answer for when, as far as modesty, but I do share with people that you want to consider the child's developing mind and body. So when we even teach, Tim mentioned the parenting classes, we teach very specifically, one of the classes is on discipline. And we'll talk about spanking, and people will ask us how long, how old uh, do you spank? And one of the things that we always advise to people is the moment your child becomes aware of their body, that's probably a time when pulling down and exposing the bottom for a spanking is no longer the best choice because they become a, it becomes where they start to feel ashamed of the exposure of them. And that's usually somewhere between 8 and 10, uh, depending on when puberty is coming in. And it changes per kid. I'm not even giving hard and fast rules here. What I'm actually saying is pay attention to their own responses around the body. That'll tell you um, that the level of curiosity that they have at different years, when that curiosity becomes repeated and repeated, and even when you've said, hey, Johnny, we don't you know, touch Susie there, this is why, and they keep doing it, that's usually an indication of we should probably put up some modesty barriers. Also, as they come into grade school, they start noticing that you don't just pull down your pants on the playground and you don't just expose your top. Like they start paying attention that a two and a three-year-old will run around, pull it off and run. A five, six, seven-year-old now knows that socially that's not what you do. When they become aware of social norms, that's a good time to start teaching modesty, that it's not about cover that up, it's shameful. It's actually the exact opposite. So this is out of, I don't even remember if this is in my slides, so I'm going to throw it in here. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches 
Um, it's actually a scripture about how, you know, the unpresentable parts, we're supposed to treat them with special modesty. So it's using the human body to teach the church body, right? He's making use of the physical, which he does over and over, to teach the spirit about something spiritual. But what we don't actually often realize is he's teaching about the body right in that scripture. And what he says is, is that there are unpresentable parts. Um, okay, when we think about that with the church, what's that mean is one thing. But think about it this way. What would you guys say? What are the unpresentable parts of the body? Genitals. Breasts. Sometimes the feet, because they stink. The buttocks. I mean, uh, the I actually got asked this by a mom in the church in San Diego. Her daughter is an artist, and she likes to do artistry with breasts. And she, and she goes, Mom, this free the tatas thing is a good thing. And I'm like, well, I don't know if you know what free the tatas is, but it's a movement on let the boobs go free so that everybody can see them. And so the thing is, is that sometimes there's just not an understanding of how God views that. In 1 Corinthians 12, it actually says, how do, you how do you treat the unpresentable parts, so the genitals, the breasts, the buttocks, how do you treat them? It says with special honor. It sometimes um, says special modesty, but that's, the word is time, which means, wow, this is so amazing, you honor it. So I compare that to, I just spoke to the, I don't know who, Somebody, Chris, while we've been here this weekend, one group, yeah, the teens, about Time, which means that it is so special that you treat it with great modesty. So this is the, if you've been to, anybody been to London? Anybody ever seen the crown jewels? Okay, so how are they protected? Oh my goodness, it's like vault after vault after vault to get in there. And the walls of the vaults are like this big. And the, you know, just to get in. So they're so precious, you take really good care of them, right? That's the idea of 1 Corinthians 12. That the modesty is not, no, 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 we don't show those, cover them up. It's these parts of our body are so precious and so important that we don't just hang them out for the world to see. We cover them not because they're shameful, but because they're precious beyond, beyond measure. So I think sometimes we just have to understand the heart of God behind why he says certain things. And sometimes it just helps knowing what the Greek means. <laughs> so when a child is doing the, ooh, what's that dangling from between your legs? Why don't I have one? Like when they're asking those questions, being able to go, right, didn't God do a cool job in how he made the body? Like, it's important to start having those conversations at about three to five, where you talk about the differences between boys' and girls' bodies and who made them. God made them. So those are great conversations to have during those toddler years so that they are cemented in the, wow, isn't my body cool. As they go into early grade school, this is one of the things that parents tell me, is they'll say, my child doesn't, you know, they don't have any questions about sexuality, we never talk about it. They did when they were three or four, but you know, you know, we talked about it then. But actually, socially, as far as mental health development, 
when children hit the early grade school years, they actually, all their questions go underground. What that means is they become socially aware of, we don't talk about that. So even though those questions are all there, they stop verbalizing them. They're all there. So that seven-year-old is super curious, but they don't necessarily verbalize it. I mean, I was teaching, <laughs> we taught at the um, Denver Youth and Family um, Conference, and <laughs> I felt so bad. I had a room full of parents of like, most half the room was teenagers and the rest were kids under that. And I was talking about that it is actually at about the age of three that I would recommend talking about the differences between boys and girls. And then at the age of seven, early grade school, that you actually have the how babies are made. The penis goes in the vagina, the sperm goes up and touches the egg. And so I'm sharing this with the parents and why, because by the time they come onto the first grade playground, they're gonna hear everything. And they don't necessarily know what all those jokes are about, but they're hearing it, right? And so who to better hear it from than you? So I was sharing about how generally I would recommend around seven-ish having the full-blown, yes, daddy's penis goes in mommy's vagina and that's how babies are made. And I looked out <laughs> at the group of parents and you could see this. And I was like, uh, so some of you might have kids that are like 12 and 15 and you still haven't had that talk. It's okay. You can go back and still do it. Don't freak out. I'm just advising those who aren't there yet. The earlier the better. Who to better hear it from than you? They're going to hear it somewhere. Our, child, our children, we did it all at seven. Um, we used the books that we're going to show a little bit called God's Design for Sex. Great set of books. So our, one of our boys... <laughs> Dad had the talk with the boys, and then I did the follow-up. So we both had the talks, but we just kind of provided different atmospheres. That's how we decided to do it. Uh, I had the talk with Jacqueline. He had a conversation afterwards. So one of my boys, I took him out for ice cream after our talk. <laughs> and I said, do you have any questions? You know, hey, how was your talk with Dad? Do you have any questions? And he goes, nope. <laughs> and I said, you look like you have a question, but you're not sure if you should ask it. Nope. <laughs> and I said, you know, it's okay. If you have a question, it's really okay to ask. You can ask me anything. Do you put your mouth on daddy's penis? I was like, seriously? You're seven. Where he heard that, like on the school playground, probably. And I said, one time I was teaching a class and I didn't finish and say what I said. Everybody's like, what did you say? Um, so generally, what I said to him was, I said, you know what? God made every part of our bodies and our bodies are amazing. And when we get married, you, any part of your body can touch any part of your partner, any part of your spouse's body. And he goes, Okay. So I, my goal was not to put a picture in his mind, but still to answer really honestly. So our children at these years, they're really curious. We just have to give them the room to share their curiosity. Sometimes you have to kind of help them with it because they're like, nope, and then nothing comes out, which is, was a couple of my kids. Um, how about, oh, so adolescence is a whole other thing. We're going to talk about puberty in a little bit. How do we talk through those years? So often you'll have this. You'll be starting nursery school, son, darling, so we need to have the sex, drugs, and drink chat. <laughs> this little baby one-year-old. 
So <laughs> that might be a little early with a one-year-old. But that is one of the questions, is when do we and how do we and to what extent do we? And it does differ. Um, so this is what we do as a church. When people are getting married, when do we have the sex talk? Two days before the wedding, the week before the wedding. The message we convey with that is, don't have, you no, know, I had one dad literally say to his daughter, oh, you want to talk about sex? We'll do that after you're married. I don't know who should be having the talk with who, but oh, please, let's not wait until they're married and two days before the wedding. There's so many questions they have. Um, I hope I have these slides included in here, but in here, in, in, if I have it, I have like 20 and it's 20 of 60 questions that your brothers and sisters who are teens, campus, and singles have asked at workshops we've been at. They have so many questions and we have to give them the room to ask them and talk about them. Adolescent years, they might not talk to you as the parent, telling you the truth. They might talk to the teen leader or their best friend, just making sure they have an environment somewhere where they can talk openly. Um, and then making it age appropriate. And that includes adulthood. So let's go back to the development again um, of some of the typical things. Like I said, little children are watching each other pee and so on. Um, those would be what you would call normal exploration. So they exhibit, they pull off their clothes and run around in the yard and they peek. So this is actually the psychological term in the research exhibitionist and voyeuristic activities. So they're just showing themselves and doing the peeping Tom thing. That's actually considered normal sexual development. Um, playing house, playing doctor, showing and touching the genitals. I'll get people that call uh, my kid and my sister's kid, their cousins, and they were doing this. I'm really worried. How much should we be worried? <sighs> so the reality is, even if it's disturbing to the child or comes up in their story 30 years later where they can remember it. It's actually common to the development of sexuality that children explore their own bodies and explore each other's bodies. That doesn't mean by saying common, we should just let it go. You should teach it and train it. However, it is normal. And our response to it is actually more of the issue. Not what's happening, but if we ignore it, or rebuke it. If we say, get your hands out of your pants. Or if we say, you did what with so-and-so? You're not, that's, you're, you know, we have a really negative response or we walk in, see them doing it and go and walk right back out of the room. Both of those, that was actually the story of one of the women in my research study. Her mom came in, she and another friend were playing doctor. Mom walks in, turns around, walks back out, says later, if you have any questions, you can ask me. And this gal in my study, she said, I remember distinctly, I was probably about six, thinking, I would love to talk to you about that. So ignoring the questions and having a negative response to the exploration can be problematic versus, hey, let's talk about that. I know you and Susie were doing such and such. Let's talk about the body. Let's talk about what the different parts are, what they do, what they're for, why we're curious, what it feels like to touch that area. What questions do you have about that? Like being, saying, let's have an open conversation sets the tone 
from there. They'll still not talk a lot, by the way, during the adolescent years necessarily, because that's also common to development. Um, yeah, relating. So uh, you'll have young girls and young boys who will, they'll share with me. My mom said at three years old, I was pressing up and down against the bars of the crib uh, over and over and over, or that I've been uh, fondling my penis since I was two and I've never stopped. So those are actually during those, these years, what you call soothing behaviors. They're not necessarily about sexuality. And even as they get older, because they get so used to that soothing behavior, then as they reach puberty and that becomes an arousal response, that arousal response that then might lead to a sexual release becomes a soothing behavior. And they keep using that same behavior to soothe themselves. So I had a mom call me, her son, uh, she had an adopted son and he was masturbating four times a day approximately. And she was really worried he's gonna end up in jail and be destroyed for life. And I got the concern and the worry but one of the things that we talked about was that, yes, that, so we're gonna talk about normal sexual development right now. That would be outside of the norm, yes. However, is it actually a sexual behavior? That might be an anxiety behavior, that he's pursuing that because he's using that to calm his anxiety. And really, because of his background and the abuse he endured when he was younger, his anxiety levels were, and so, I just talked about how what I would actually pursue is his treatment for anxiety. And I think you might find that the sexual behaviors then get more guided. And she actually spoke to me not too long ago. Um, he's now a disciple and he's like 19. And she said, I can't tell you how helpful that information was because she was, ah, stop doing that. And then she went to, hey son, let's talk about that and let's get some help with what's really underneath it. So figuring out what to do when they're touching and what it's about is usually pretty important as well as educating about the body and, and talking. So our, our uh, response when our children were little, because they would all touch themselves, especially the boys, because penis is dangling there and they're like, what is this? And so they get used to you know touching themselves. And so we talked about how, you know, these are the Right? The, we actually used 1 Corinthians 12. These parts of our bodies are so precious. They're so important to God. And so they aren't something to be mildly whatever used. They're not toys to be played with. They're to be honored. And so we don't actually play with them like toys. So go ahead and take your hands out. And that's all we would do. And we would just do it over and over. Not in a, don't do that, just in a, hey, remember, those are important parts of our body. You know? And so instead of shaming the touch, it's more of a let's bring in our belief system and teach it in a way that's not shaming, but it's honoring. That's exploratory and explanatory at the same time. So how to do that through the years changes as they get older and they're 10 and 12 and they're now on the internet doing pornography and touching themselves. That's a different issue and we'll get there. Um, however, Every time we have to watch our response to what are actually common behaviors as they are maturing. Um, I'll have people say, uh, my, the two girls were feeling each other up and they're like six and eight. Is she going to become a lesbian? So actually it's pretty common during the early years that the sexual play is same gendered. 
just so you know, that little piece there. Um, they go underground during later childhood and early adolescence. And let me just check if I have this slide anywhere. Yes. So what would be considered atypical behavior? So this means not typical. What are some of the things that are outside of the range of healthy normal development? Usually you'll see these behaviors, if all the ones I just described to you, if they continue into early, um, into late grade school, early middle school, it's a hmm. It's not a something's wrong, possibly something's wrong, but it's a hmm. Let's pay attention to this. So if there's oral genital contact, probably good to check. Were they exposed to something? Did someone do something to them? Did they see something? Where is that idea coming from? If there is sexual seductive behavior and speech, where did they hear that? Where's that from? Where has it been modeled for them? Now, to tell you the truth, my mother-in-law bought all of our kids Old Navy shirts, right? The t-shirts that come out each year. She bought t-shirts for the boys and then she bought a tank top for my daughter. And I was like, mm, I feel that tank top, it's a shake, but okay. We put it on her, I swear, four years old, cutest little thing. She goes, in front of the mirror. It was a tank, Old Navy thing. And she's like, oh, oh. And I'm like, where does this come from? I don't know. We just didn't buy tanks anymore. But the reality is, we're not always sure where sexualized behavior comes from, but it should create a conversation. Could it be from something problematic that's happened to them? It could. Or it might just be a part of their development that you need to train and guide. Um, so we're talking about uh, basically seven coming into first grade into middle school. So it, that's quite a span. But if they're doing these kinds of things, especially past, if they're coming into puberty, like 9, 10, 11, and there's some of you still seeing some of these, you go, hmm. Again, it could just be that they are developing later. They're going through those phases later than the common child. It's just something to consider that there might be something more going on, so you want to ask. You want to find out, is anybody touching them inappropriately? You want to check, are they seeing any, are they, are they getting onto stuff on their phone that you don't know about? You know, what are, what, who are they hanging out with? If they're going over to a friend's home where they have older siblings, what are they hearing in these different environments? So they could be, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was on the computer, this was 14 years ago. I'm on the computer and I didn't know anything about computers and I accidentally hit this button that shows the history and I look at the history and I'm like, Charger cheerleaders. So San Diego has had the Chargers football team. Charger cheerleaders and right underneath it, B-E-J-I-N-A. B-E-J-I-N-A. Vagina. Either my husband's having a struggle I don't know about and can't spell very well, <laughs> or, <laughs> no joke, it really happened. And I'm like, so 
we had a 10-year-old at that time, and we had a talk, and we had a really good talk. Tell me what you're wondering, what are your questions, what, what led to looking this up, who did you do it with, um, what were you wondering about, what did you see? We just had a really great talk, and he said to me at the end of it, he goes, so does this mean, like, if I struggle with this again, I can come and talk to you? <laughs> and I was like, that would be great. Now, we also have sinful natures. Our children have sinful natures, and that's not necessarily what they do when they start sinning. What do we do when we sin? We hide it, right? So, but the thing is, is that you can set the stage as much as possible in your response to say, we can talk about this. So, yes, that curiosity is super common during these years. Asking about where they're getting certain behaviors is helpful. Just not saying, you shouldn't act like that. What are you watching? That's going to stop the conversation right there. Um, yes, an atypical behavior would be the insertion of an object into the vagina, the anus, or the penis. Again, all of these are, hmm, I should check that out. It could mean something more serious that they've been assaulted in some way or violated in some way or they're watching something in some way. I think we just have to be wise about how quickly we jump to this mean my, means my child has been violated in some way. It could be, and you should take it seriously. But watch that heart. The heart starts pounding. You find out your kid does something and your stomach drops and your heart starts pounding. Take a breath. Everybody do it with me. Breathe in your nose. And out your mouth. Oh, gosh, when our kids do certain things, right? The body gets tense. The heart rate goes up. Take a breath. Go for a walk. Don't come into the conversation with your kid activated like that because you're going to be the exasperated, angry, scared parent. Fear drives a lot of our responses. Um, French kissing can be an indication. If they are found imitating intercourse, playing with another child, doing some kind of thrusting, that's a pretty good indicator they've seen something. Um, if this is a big one that can be indicative of a number of different things, where if you find out they are doing any demanding, coercive, threatening, forceful, or aggressive acts, or if they're involved in compulsive patterns, this is the four times of masturbating a day at 10, those will be like a, hmm, what are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with a mental health issue? Are we dealing with some kind of abuse that's happened, physical or sexual or emotional or neglect? What are we dealing with here? Um, what are they watching? What are they seeing? So my own clients, these are some of the things. Mm, I'm going to move through these. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm going to pop back at one actually. My own clients have experienced all of these kinds of things. Um, what I would call exploitative and dehumanizing sexual interactions where they've been forced to watch. So this is where they've been forced to watch pornography or one of the biggest ones that comes in my office is they were forced to watch a male in their family masturbate. That's a big one. Um, I had a woman share she was like eight. They were having a sleepover and her stepdad came in and was masturbating with all the children asleep in the room. So those would be exploitative and dehumanizing. Um, any exposure to pornography. I had a family come in, dad's pornography on his computer, uh, the three-year-old was exposed to it. You'll, I mean, they're playing on a phone, 
and all of a sudden something flashes up. So that can definitely be what you would call a negative psychosexual event, meaning it can affect the develop healthy development of sexuality. Um, okay, so witnessing adult sexuality. In other words, if they walk in on you, again, if they walk in on you while you're having sex as a married couple, what do you do with that? Um, the, the response to that would be having an open and honest conversation. You know, my, one of my kids came up to me one morning, so, mom, um, I was going to bed the other night, this is when they're getting older and they're going to bed after us, right? Going to bed the other night and I heard some things. <laughs> All right. Well, what'd you do? Put in my earplugs, my, ear, my headphones. That's what, and he met, named his best friend. That's what he said he does when he hears his parents. And I was like, oh my gosh, they even talk about it. <laughs> so these are our best friends, their son. And I said, so do you know what our boys are talking about? <laughs> You know, they are going to see and hear things. And how can we put that in a context of this is healthy and good and this is what parents do instead of, oh, my gosh, and now it's a trauma, right? Um, so, again, in all honesty, people always ask me, what would you say is one of the biggest things that makes a difference? Openly talking about it. Having a, it's okay to have a conversation about what you just saw. There was a brother, this is, totally off topic. There was a brother who, um, he was having an early morning uh, tea time with another brother, and his wife didn't know that they were there. She's very well endowed. He, they both, the two guys, are walking into the house, and she walks out stretching, and she's displayed before the world. She opens her eyes, screams at the top of her lungs, and flees back into the bedroom. And the husband was like, you guys are going to talk about this. And she's like, I am not talking to him. Okay, so that's a really crazy example, right? But the reality is, these are two adults. We should be able to have a conversation with our children, between ourselves. We have so many rules and regulations around what we can and can't say, and so then it happens in our families as well. So open conversation would be the number one thing. The other thing that really can be a negative event as children mature is not just problematic responses to sexuality, but negative attitudes around the body. So this has to do with harsh comments that someone makes about a child's body or their own body or someone else's body. I was working with um, a woman in one of my research studies and her dad, um, would put her obese sister on the scale in front of the family. Yeah. She developed anorexia for about 30 years. And she told me, she goes, I wore baggy clothes the rest of my adult, it just developed over time. She's a faithful disciple, she has overcome anorexia, but to this day, she shared with me, she's in her 50s, great husband. And she's like, it's just really hard for me to be naked in front of him. Those negative, this was not even a negative comment about her own body. It was a negative comment about someone else's body. And the same woman described how her mom would sit at the table and make this big meal and then stand there and, you know, not eat it with them and say, you know, I'm not having that today. Her mother dieted all throughout her life. 
So negative views of the body come through and they affect sexuality in a big way. And then it will make that male or female self-conscious of their body in the midst of sex, or it'll make them engage in risky sexual behaviors. I mean, it just, it has such a big impact. So one of the pieces that seems non-sexual but isn't is the development of the view of the body. Again, we have to teach a positive view of the body. Um, actually, with the women last night, I spent, what, about a third of the time talking about this. Did we record that, Chris? Okay, so if you want to watch a much more extended section on uh, the development of a healthy view of the body, you can, you can do that. That was a fun one. Um, oh, and then if a child is exposed or is assaulted in any way, how a parent responds or how a caregiver responds has a pretty big impact. I had one, another woman in my research study, she was, um, and they were in a hotel, she was in the stairway of the hotel, and some guy uh, shoves her up against a wall and starts touching her. She was like 10, and she managed to get away from him and run up the stairs, and she flew into the hotel room, and she's in the bathroom going, <gasps> and she says, I remember thinking, I can't tell my parents this, and she never did. Like, where does that message come from? 10 years old, and actually her parents were disciples. So it's not like this wasn't a family that was healthy and strong. It's a good family. But even in that, they didn't talk openly around sexuality. This was actually the same mom who, who walked out of the room and didn't say anything when she found them touching the same, same family. That message of I can't talk openly with my parents, that's vital. So sometimes a parent will true they don't say a lot I had a woman who was um, she was raped at 18 and after she went to the police she came and saw her mom and she told her mom and her mom said hmm and that was the only response she got from her mom about a rape another woman working with me and it is often women but I have men who have absolutely been assaulted at all ages and another woman uh, she 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 her brother was assaulting her and she told her older brother and he didn't have a good response. They just healed that relationship. They just talked through it, and they're in their 30s. So those negative responses, um, uh, it, gosh, I could go on and on about this one, has a huge impact. How to have a healthy response when our child comes to us um, instead of saying, well, what were you wearing, and what were you doing, and why were you even there, right? which then you know, puts all the blame there instead of maybe they did. I, I worked with a woman. She's in her 50s now. She was assaulted at 15. She was at a party. She was drinking. She was dressed inappropriately. She was in the drug world. A guy offered a ride home. She got in the car. He raped her, right? She's 50, and she still says in her mind, I'm a pervert, and I caused that. So one of the things we talked about was, you were drinking, you were doing drugs, you were at a really inappropriate party, you got in this car. You can take responsibility for all of those things. Cool. Take responsibility for not making great choices. That rape is not your fault, no matter what you did. So that's important that we respond with whoever comes to us with that level of understanding and compassion and help 
um, even with our children, because they're going to come to you with things that they've done and things that are done to them. So we've already hit most of these, so I'm going to go on. Okay. What we know from the research is that your response to your kids during especially the adolescent years has a huge impact on how that what you call the sexual self schema that's the way they view sexuality so we actually this is secular research this isn't even me talking to our brothers and sisters this is what they found that positive parenting in regards to sexuality is connected to an adolescent a teenager's sexual self-concept the view of themselves as a sexual person parents that are open and adaptive have adolescents that are more likely to disclose so the ways that are not open and adaptive are when we have really um, even just around gender really rigid views of gender boys don't dress like that girls don't do that Girls don't play with toys like that. No, you, that's not an appropriate job for you. Like rigid views of what a girl should do and what a boy should do, let alone all the areas of, of sexuality. So pay attention to, when I teach, so I'm a professor at a couple different universities, and one of the, the um, assignments that I give, you can actually take my courses, by the way, online, um, through the Rocky Mountain School of Ministry and Theology, the uh, Glenn Giles, who's an elder in Denver, started a university that's connected with Lincoln University. You can get your degree. And so this next fall, I will be teaching on sexual therapy. And right now, I'm teaching on marriage and family therapy. And you can get a uh, college credit for it. And so um, one of the things I have them do is their assignment in both classes is to do a genogram. And when I do the sexual genogram, they have to examine what were the rules around boys and girls and how was the family responses around those rules and about what the roles in the family this is what a dad does this is what a mom does and the, how rigid are those rules my husband he's walking in the door he does i didn't say this just because i saw you walking in um he does the laundry and he does the dishes so my children have grown up i do too but i'm just saying he is more than willing to help with all that so those rigid ideas around what a boy and girl are supposed to do will affect the development of sexuality. How is the, this is a huge impact on the development of sexuality for adolescents. How is the overall emotional, emotional closeness? How is the overall emotional closeness? So this has to do with moms and their kids and dads and their kids, both. So that has to do with how well are you doing Mm, just having great talks with your kids, sharing your own life, um, talking about what you're struggling with, what you're getting help with, kind of what we talked about earlier. And how good is your communication? When, um, so I teach how to genuinely communicate directly. This is the validation piece. Uh, when we're in conflict in marriage even, how to genuinely and without blame and attack, share with somebody what's going on. And then how to listen without defensiveness, but instead draw another person out. It's the model I call, in fact, I'm going to talk about it tonight at the married class, validation. So I teach this day in and day out. I'm a therapist. I do it with people day in and day out. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm always good at it. 
Um, I think we do a pretty good job at it. Hmm. I probably, you probably do a better job with me than I do with you. Um, but, oh my gosh, I'm with my son a couple weeks ago, and he was like, you got so defensive, Mom. And I was like, ah, you're right. <laughs> so I had to go back and apologize. I mean, it's hard to have good communication with a teenager when you're like, oh, heck no, you are not saying that. Right? The heart rate going up and all that. So we do have to find, we do have to be continually growing in how we're doing in our communication. Um, how affectionate are you? I have a lot in your family. Um, I can't tell you how often I hear in my office, my, my parent was really affectionate until they were really affectionate when I was little. They, my dad would toss me in the air. My mom would cuddle with me. But there was something like 12, 13, 14, just no, no more. There was no more affection. So the adolescent years, parents aren't sure what to do with that adolescent body. So they will sometimes pull back in their affection. Or conflict is higher. That cute little 10-year-old that thought you were God, who now thinks you're a demon, you know, <laughs> They aren't so cuddly and wanting to talk to you so much, so it affects affection. Our kids' healthy development includes really good affectionate touch in families. Um, so figuring out how to have what I would call, this is straight, again, from the research, nurturing interactions and affectionate touch and an overall positive family context. Um, I was having a conversation yesterday about how we haven't always done a great job of taking care of our families in the ministries, especially our ministry families, where we don't prioritize family time and fun. And so we have a couple who's in our ministry who they just moved to another region. They, they, they're in, on staff. And <laughs> I was like, I guess this is a compliment. They said, the one, one of the greatest things we le learned from Tim and Jennifer was that we needed to take vacations, just us as a family. I was like, there's a few other things we talked about through the years, but I'm glad that got through. And that, and she said, and having family rituals and traditions. Well, that is something we feel really strongly about, that um, we didn't use our vacations a few years to go visit our families. We used it to go away as a family and go do fun things. So we have some crazy memories. And the reason why is because Mm, I think God's like that with us. God is so interested in spending time with us. So we, as parents, need to start that. So what we did with our kids through the years, um, <laughs> in embarrassing words sometimes for them as they matured, we had dates with them every week. So we would go individually. We have four kids, and so we would, like, one week he would do two, and I would do two, and we'd swap them back and forth so that our kids had an individual time with us every week. Why? Because keeping that close relationship is vital as they mature. Our son, our oldest son, he was 16 at the time, and we went out as a family together to the movies, and there were a bunch of his high school friends at the movies, and then he and I were going out for a date afterwards, and <laughs> I'm like, hey, Micah, come on, we got to go do our date. And he's like, mom, oh my gosh. I was like, what? You said that in front of my friends. So be careful of your language as they mature. But the reality is they 
still, our kids are adults, and they love it when we get to go do individual things with them, even now and through the years. So that's what I'm talking about, the nurturing interactions. If you want them to talk openly about it, it, whatever it is, spend time together. We, we used to joke, we were both you know, working and busy and leading ministries, and so sometimes we couldn't get the time to go away and do something with them, even for an hour. And so I, I would have what I called the party in the bed, where they'd already be asleep, the lights are off, and I'd come creeping in with a bowl of popcorn and a deck of cards, and I'd turn on the light, and <laughs> we'd eat popcorn and play cards for like 15 minutes, and then I'd say, you don't have to brush your teeth again, and then I'd slip back out of the room. So, like, if we are intentional about those nurturing interactions, it's amazing the impact that will make on that they can be open during the tough times. Research shows us that if we have tons of little conversations, the tough conversations become more possible, right? Uh, some of the most open times when they're younger is when they're falling asleep. So my favorite thing was to scratch their backs and sing songs to them when they were little and actually all the way up until they were old enough to tell me I don't want to do that anymore, <laughs> um, around 12-ish. And it's amazing what will come out of their mouths, the questions that will come out, the things they won't tell you. It's like their defenses kind of go down. Well, with boys especially, I have three, they won't necessarily do it when they're face-to-face -face with you. It's the weirdest thing. They'll do it when they're shoulder-to-shoulder. So all of my boys, I swore when we got our first video game, I was going to learn how to play it with them, so I'd be the little cool mom. I never learned. I mean, I just don't get it. Like, what do your fingers do? So I never learned. My sister-in-law's amazing at it. I never learned it. So, but what I'll do, and I still do it, like my 24-year-old, he was playing, and I come in, and I just plop myself down, and I'm eating, and I'm watching as he's playing, and I'll ask different questions, and he'll tell me what it is. And I'll sit there sometimes for a half an hour, 45 minutes. When he was a senior in high school, he got done at 12. And I changed my work hours so I could make sure I was there. And I'm sitting there eating lunch. And here we are. This was, that was uh, 18, so he's now six years older. And I'm still doing it. And he's playing. Out will come all of this stuff. They're playing. I don't know how they do it. They're playing this video game. Crash, bang, boom, shoot it. And they're talking. And, they're, and he literally got emotional. So I don't know what it is, but some kids, not just boys, but some kids do better to have those deep talks, those nurturing interactions when you're shoulder to shoulder. Some do better face to face. My middle boy, he loves to talk. So he'll just, you know, and so we go out to eat and he's pouring out his heart. Every kid's different, but providing the time to have these sticky conversations comes from having lots of small ones. So encourage that. <laughs> I did think this was funny. I just threw it in here. Mom asked me if I knew where babies came from, so I told her. <laughs> Uh-oh. So maybe we can do a different job than this picture on how we talk with our kids. Let me just tap on to, because I said I would, a little bit more on touch. Touch is super important. Um, we don't necessarily know how to talk about it. Uh, some kids from day one, they're like a baby and they're arching against touch. That can come from development, difference in personalities and so on, so they might reject it. Um, question: I had a mom ask, my son's 12 and he still likes to put his head on my lap. Should we keep doing that? That's a good question. The answer is yes, 
but I understand where the question's from. He's maturing. He knows you have a vagina now. Should you have his head by it? You know, should I, hold, should I hug my child? Should I still let my daughter sit in my lap? I'm a dad. I love my girls. I? So those questions, the thing is people pull back from those interactions rather than talking about that. So I would encourage, talk about it. I don't know the answer to your circumstances, but I do know that the more we talk about it, the better. You have your own experiences around touch from your own upbringing, and it affects how you interact in the touch in your family. So work through that, talk through that. There's a whole chapter in our marriage book on touch. Oh no, it's also in our Redeemed Sexuality, both two very different chapters. Touch is vital to our very souls. The word of the process I use as a therapist is called skin hunger. Literally, your skin needs touch. Cancer victims, um, do cancer survivors from surgery um, recover better when someone's holding their hand. Babies get better. All the mental health disorders and all the physical, they've done so much research on touch. If there is intimate contact with another person, People get better physically. I don't know how that works personally. That's like bizarre that that kind of thing would help us physically, but we know that it does. Um, and when you think about it, that matches what we see in the scriptures. I always love to talk about how Jesus was with touch. Did Jesus have to touch someone to heal them? The guy's in another town, and the guy says, no, nope, you don't need to come, and he sends the message through the air somehow, and the guy gets healed, right? Every other story, he's touching them. Every other story, even his enemies. Peter chops off the ear of the guy that was there to arrest him, and he literally puts the ear back on. I mean, Peter is walking on water towards Jesus after Jesus walks on water, and he starts to slip. Jesus could have done the whole you know, Jedi thing, but he didn't. He literally reached down and pulled Peter back. He touched, he held the kids in his arms, close to his heart, it says. He didn't just hold them, he held them close to his heart. Touch is really important. So if you want to talk about sexuality more openly in your families, start talking about touch more openly in your family. This needs to be in our campus ministries, our singles ministries. And I don't mean young singles. Uh, we've been now to a couple different countries. We've been to Singapore, Sweden, that where all of this came up each time. Singapore, Sweden, and Mexico. We did some classes for just the older singles. These are the singles who are single either due to divorce or loss, or they just never got married, and they're in their 40s and 50s. Our, our, and these were almost all sisters. Very very aching that no one talked about sexuality with them and the thing this is the first time i heard it really clear was in singapore these your sisters your sisters in the faith in singapore literally shedding tears saying nobody hugs me i i can't remember the last time someone hugged me we need to touch in our marriages in our families in our ministries Go hug your single brothers and sisters. I told, I think it was last week to the singles, I said, so be aware if all of a sudden all the married start coming up to you and giving you hugs. <laughs> we need to start, sexuality to be healthy, it means our bodies need to be healthy, including in the area of touch. 
So um, this is from our book. Touch was important to Jesus, though he could heal people without touching them. He still touched the leper. He touched Peter's mother-in-law. He held a girl's hand as he brought her from the dead. He touched an attacker as he healed his ear. He touched a deaf man's tongue and the inside of his ears. Ick. He touched even, he wanted and even wanted to touch his enemies. He said, he came up over Jerusalem and he cries. He looks over Jerusalem and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. And he's talking about the guys that just wanted to foam up a cliff. Jesus prioritized touch. We need to prioritize touch. That makes a big difference in the development of sexuality. So how do we as parents communicate a healthy view of sexuality? First of all, check your own. Check your comfortability. And I'm just now repeating myself. Sorry. Let's go back. And what I just said, which was start first with your own marriage. That's one of the keys. So how do you have that talk about sex? Um, I'm realizing I'm repeating myself. Okay. When it comes to, so this is when your kids are young. And you're talking about their wee-wee and their wah-wah and their she-she and their sha-sha. You know, like whatever you call it. I actually, in our, in, so there's a whole parenting section. Redeem Sexuality is for campus singles and, campus singles and teens. It might cause tingles. Campus singles and teens. But it's also got a whole, it's also for parents. So it's got a whole section on parents. And I had more fun researching one of the sections of that book, which was what are the terms that people use all over the world? And oh my gosh, they're so funny. Like the other parts of the world that speak English, like in England, the words are hilarious. We use some pretty funny terms for the penis and the vagina, right? The vajayjay. Well, number one, most of the time when people say the vajayjay, they actually mean the vulva. The vulva is the entire uh, female genitalia. The vajayjay, the vagina, is just the hole that leads up to, that's a tube that leads up to the cervix. We don't often use the right terms even. You know, the wee-wee instead of the, or the pee-pee instead of the penis. Now, they are funny. We all do them. But it's interesting. Using those terms does give a message often, which is, we don't talk about that. We can't use the actual term. I was just talking to, I probably shouldn't reveal this, so I won't. Somebody you all know and love, anyway, who was talking with their uh, wife, and the wife was like, I'm not going to use those words. These are in a married relationship, right? Where it was like, I don't use those words, right? This is a couple that's recently married. And the reality is, even as married, mature adults, we don't like to say certain words. So, so, do this with me. Everybody repeat after me. Toe, knee, elbow. Eyebrow, ear, foot, vulva, penis, vagina, clitoris. All right, you did it. You lived. In a mixed audience, some of you are single, and we go, oh, no, did we miss, just make them struggle? They're going to go out and have sex now because we said those words. But we really do think that way. 
We're afraid to talk openly and honestly about sexuality because we're afraid to make somebody struggle in our campus singles teens ministries, right? The reality is, you know what our singles are saying? We desperately want to talk to the marrieds. But when I walk in the room, I had a sister literally say, she goes, I walk in the room and literally the sisters go, shh, shh, shh. And she's like, I would love to know what you're talking about. I would love to talk openly about it. We have to get rid of the taboo. And it starts with little kids, with just openly and honestly saying, this is what this body part is. This is what we call it. It takes away the taboo message. So that would be with a, for all of you with young children, start there. Um, I already talked about the ages. Um, how babies are made should be the early grade school years. And yes, this is what mommy and daddy do. This is how it's done. And this is how ba you, you were made. In puberty, one of the biggest things that doesn't get talked about, and this is about you sitting with your kids, don't just have the talk at seven. Have the talk again and again and again and again. That it should just be this open, <laughs> my daughter's like, mom, we've already talked about it like several times. But what's really interesting is now that she's even older, she still comes back and goes, okay, I have a question for you. She actually called me up. Her, all of her roommates were on, on the phone. She, she put me on speakerphone. We all have a question for you. And it's not just because of what I do. She just like, she asks it, and they're all like, we were asking it too. Let's find out. Um, providing that atmosphere in which we can explain what's happening to the body. The singles want to know, does it hurt? Do you bleed? You know, they're not married yet, but they're wondering about it. Um, do we talk openly about hormones and what it does to the body? That as the child is maturing in their body that's what the hair is the testicles descend as they go into the teenage years um, they'll have nighttime emissions where just for either from a dream or it's just what their body does the the young boy's penis will ejaculate in the middle of the night it'll still happen actually I have a, a gentleman in my office he's in his 50s and he said it's still happening and he's like, I think there's maybe something wrong. And I'm like, well, let's go find out. Uh, let me send you to somebody. And you can ask them those medical questions. Do we provide the atmosphere, whether they're 7 or 57, to talk about the physiology, the hormonal impacts? When women go through menopause, so um, the gir a girl's um, hormones at 4 are where a woman's hormones go after menopause. That's a rather significant change through the years. So we should be able, we're doing a better job talking about it now, about these later years. We don't always do a great job talking about it in the early years, about the hair on the body and the fact that sweat comes because hormones change and what is happening to their arousal system. When um, I teach, my very first class that I was teaching to teens, um, I said to, I actually just said this to your campus students. I said, I have a question for you guys. What were you thinking about this class when you saw the title of the class? What did you think? This was just a couple hours ago. And a couple hands went up and somebody goes, a class on purity. You could tell that wasn't a pos positive. She's like, a class on purity. And another guy said, you know, a couple different things. And I said, the very first class I taught was years ago to a group of teenage girls in my home. And I said, so what were you told this was called? We're going to talk about purity. So how did you feel about that, that it was going to be on purity? And they were like, here's another class on how not to wear short shorts. 
and how not to wear low-cut tops, and don't make the brothers struggle. I just said this to your campus students, they were dying laughing, because that's what they all anticipated, the talk that we had this morning to be on. They're kind of tired of hearing that the only time we, as a church, the only time we talk about sex is when it has to do with purity and sin. We don't openly and honestly talk about it. And so that's not just the church, it's, it's in our families that it should be an ongoing conversation so that they can openly and honestly ask the questions no matter what age they are. Um, for instance, the girls in my research study, the women in my research study, uh, almost all but one learned about how to use a tampon and what pads to use and how to get their first bra from girlfriends and sisters, not from their moms. What, how can we make that shift so that it can be an open conversation, even about the physical changes to the body? Um, and so one of the things that we often don't talk about is that, so these girls, these teenagers that were in my, my living room, I said, so you thought this is what the talk was going to be on, and another talk on purity. I said, I have a question for you. Have you ever read a book or watched a movie or listened to a song or thought a thought and then your vagina started throbbing? And they were like, oh, I can't believe you just said that. I said, well, I'm just asking because this is actually what happens. So God created a sexual response to the body where the blood flow flows to the genitals for boys and girls. It causes an erection for boys and it causes um, an erection underneath the lips for the girls in the vagina. It's actually a God-given physiological response. And so, yes, there might be times where we purposely cause that response by watching something we shouldn't watch or reading something we shouldn't read. If, if our values and our beliefs are that we're not going to pursue being sexual and having an orgasm. However, sometimes it just happens. I mean, you're watching TV and the Victoria's Secret ad comes on and it's like, I was, I was telling your campus students a couple hours ago that I was with a couple in my office and they had a lot of problems in their sexual relationship. And um, she and her husband were watching TV and, and the Victoria's Secret ad came on. And she immediately looked down at his crotch and he had an erection. She was furious for other reasons in that moment. But the thing I, I took some time to do is say, well, so let me just explain how that works. The physiological response of the throbbing vagina and the erect penis is actually controlled by the lower spine. When you go see the doctor and you put your leg over like this and they hit your leg and it goes woo, that's actually checking the reflex in uh, your lower spine. So that blood flow is, is, is not a mm, spiritual, I shouldn't be having, there's no time to be spiritual. The body automatically responds that way. Now, after that response comes in, we can bring in our values and go, what do I want to do with that response? I want to guide and guard that response so I'm not going to continue watching this or reading that or go masturbate to orgasm. I'm going to use my belief system to decide how to respond to that. But wouldn't that be amazing? if we did a good job of saying, well, that's actually how God created your body. And so we need to honor that response. So I really encourage you as you're teaching your kids, some of you were already, and I already did this at a talk you heard this earlier, last night even, 
how we talk to our kids about their biology and how to steward their body has a huge impact on whether they'll continue talking about it. So I actually asked my son, how did I do on this, my youngest son? And I said, did we talk about arousal and how it works and the blood flow thing? And he's like, no. I'm like, sorry, I'm telling everybody else they should. Do you want to talk about it now? He's like, I already know, Mom. Um, <laughs> I think that was the one area we just kind of left out of the conversation. The reality is I think all of us have areas that we're needing to grow in on discussing things openly. The other thing we don't do is we don't talk about enjoyable sex. We talk about don't ha so when I ask people, what, are the thing what does the Bible teach about sex? You know what they say? Don't have it until you're married and don't do it with a dog or anybody in your family, like your aunt. You know, who not to do it with and don't do it until. The Bible teaches so much more. So with the singles group and the campus group and the teens, I did a whole section on what does the Bible teach? It's really positive about sex. Really positive. Do we talk about the positive end? Our teen ministries should be studying. I'm going to blow your minds with this, but they should be studying Song of Songs. They're reading the books with sex in them. They're watching the movies with sexual or romantic scenes in them. God wrote Song of Songs. If they're going to read a romantic book, read that one. It's an awesome one. So what would it be like if we actually guided their understanding during those formative years with this is God's plan? Because it's beautiful. She's, okay, let me tell you something. I just, I'm going to have a new chapter that's not in any of my books. Um, that I'm doing tonight at the marriage thing. It's called Sexual Generosity. And I just redid my own study of Song of Songs this, when we were having fun in Hawaii a few months ago. And I had so, I was like, oh, look at, he made jewelry for her. The lover in Song of Songs, he made jewelry for her. Did you know that? It says that she plans. I mean, there's so many lovely things. She's like, come on in. And he's like, put your head here. It's a beautiful book. It's so poetic. But it really shows you intimacy. And they need to learn that God's version of intimacy is beautiful. It's not just sexual. It is clearly sexual. When he's saying, I'm browsing among the lilies and I'm tasting of her wine, he is not talking about wine. He's probably talking about the flow of the vaginal response during her orgasm. Because then he says, I'm browsing among it, and then I climb the palm tree and I grasp the fruit. And he clearly said that the fruit is her breasts. So he's climbing her body and grasping her breasts. He's talking about exploring her sexually. It's in the Bible, and we shouldn't say, don't read those parts. Age appropriately, you're not going to sit with a three-year-old and <laughs> teach that. But at one point, having a this is God. Look how beautiful it is. He calls her body a garden. How beautiful is that, right? So I think we should switch that. <laughs> Instead of teaching Song of Solomon after people are married, maybe we ought to do some educating before. So just a thought um, for our other ministries, right? Um, the reason why it's important to keep the conversation going is because they have questions. 
and sometimes they don't verbalize them very well at seven, eight, and nine. They get better at verbalizing them in like middle school usually, so continuing to have that talk is vital. And how are we doing having, a talk, having talks about the uncomfortable conversations? So this is, their friends are having sex outside of marriage. They know a lot of people. Most of their friends' parents are having sex outside of marriage. It might have happened in your marriage. Are we talking openly and honestly when sexuality happens outside of the marriage? Are we talking openly and honestly about how pregnancy works, arousal, like I said, same-sex attraction? Who here has heard um, Guy Hammond speak? Great. And I'm going to do my classic. Who here owns uh, Guy Hammond's book, Hearing Beyond the Margins? Who doesn't owe, own Guy Hammond's book on Hearing Beyond the Margins? Keep your hands up really high. Put them up really high. Put them up really high. Keep them up there. I, some of you are heard of this. Keep your hands up there. Some of you already heard me say this. Go home tonight and buy Guy Hammond's book, Hearing Beyond the Margins. If you want to know, your kids are being inundated with messages about how they're supposed to feel and think and believe. You need to have the ability to have a gentle, kind, good conversation about their doubts, about what they're, they're going to come home and they're going to say, my daughter actually said she was, I don't know, 16. Mom, mom, gay people are so funny. I was like, huh, really? All gay people are funny? I said, I'm curious, why do you say that? <laughs> and we ended up having this nice, really long conversation on, you know, not all gay people are funny any more than all heterosexual people are funny. So they're getting this message of, I, you know, what does love look like for somebody who's same-sex attracted? They ought to first and foremost be able to have that conversation with you. How do you do it respectfully without slamming them for their comments? Because we get scared. We get scared as parents. And so we respond really strongly. Go, Guy is God's gift to our family. Um, Brandon is, same, is a transgender. He's your brother. He had a full sex reassignment surgery at 18, was converted at like 27, I think, in, in Florida. He's amazing. He's now living as a man, born as a man, now back to living as a man. He has a, the Guy Hammond's second edition has a whole chapter from him in there. He leads the transgender ministry. We due to various factors, are continually talking to them. I am on the board for Strength and Weakness. I call Brandon. I call the Wrights who are on the board. I call Guy. We talk to them. We email them. It is such a source of help. We should all be way better informed. And I if you've heard him, great. Go read the book. Because we need to be able, a part of talking to your kids about sexuality is talking to them about all of sexuality. Not just theirs, but the whole idea of sexuality. So find ways to do that better and better. How can, this is the question, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? So this is how it says it in Song of Songs. By living according to your word, right? If we want our children to live pure lives, the first place to ground them deeply is in the scriptures. This is what it also says. And so this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best 
and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This scripture applies to you as parents, to us as parents, and to your kids. We need to be deeply in the word. So that's why I, I, I got asked by um, the, one of the teen leaders, how do I help these young teen boys who are struggling with pornography? And my answer is always, the first thing you do is ground them in an overall understanding of sexuality. We go after the sin of pornography. It is, and it is destroying the brains and taking those bodies down paths. The Bible says that the one sin that is the most destructive to the body is sexual sin. There's no question that it's destroying lives and people. I'm a sex therapist and an addiction. I am also a chemical dependency counselor. I work with addiction. Addiction, including sexual addiction, destroys people. But what we often do is we go after the behavior and we don't do the underlying health and teaching. So the big thing around, especially pornography, sexual addiction, using any of those, is that we don't ground their choices and their beliefs in an overall understanding. That's the knowledge part of sexuality. So that's where you start with yours. And then when we do that, we're able to discern. We're able to know what's best. We're able to choose what's pure. So grounding in that is so, so important. I teach the Singles Campus and Teen Ministries about purity. Look at some of these words about purity. One of them is, in, this is my favorite one, which is in Philippians. The word in the Greek is alikrines, which means pure, unalloyed, unmixed, sincere, and judged by sunlight. Okay, we tend to go, you need to stay pure until marriage. I don't know. I think we should probably stay pure all our lives. Right? We have to change how we think about purity. We think of it as this big negative thing. The word actually means judged by sunlight. Right? That's a beautiful picture in the mind. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, it means special honor. Parisos means abundant, excessive, preeminent, exceeding. That's how... God views purity sexually. Um, again, the word time, not the word time, the, word, the Greek word time, honorable, means value, price, and honor. So I do, I do think we need to teach our young about, I, this is the name of one of the chapters in uh, Redeemed Sexuality is Save Yourself. And I chose it intentionally because it can kind of be a negative term, save yourself. Well, what does that mean exactly, right? Um, first of all, teaching about purity and holiness, honestly and genuinely, where purity isn't this horrible negative thing, is vital. Teaching them that 1 Corinthians says that the body is not made for sexual morality. That literally means the body's not made for sexual morality. It's literally not made that way. It's not intended to ever be used that way. So let's talk about the body. The body is so fascinating. I don't know if I'm going to get there today if I've added this in this, this lesson, but I do a whole section 
for the campus news and teens on embodied living. And we actually did it for the marrieds in Sweden. I just realized that. Where people ask me a lot, how do we overcome uh, sexual addiction, pornography, masturbation, all of that? Our bodies, we have to figure out what to do with them. Uh, remember Jesus teaches about how you have to, uh, the guy that sweeps his house out, he, he's, and, and, there's, and, there, and he, then he leaves the house empty and seven more demons come in. So when they say, I'm not going to do this anymore, what do they put in in its place? You have to fill that house up with good stuff. I have a young brother, he's your brother, he's 21 or 22. He's been looking at pornography since he was 10. He comes into my office at this at the age that he is. He hasn't had more than a month free. He's tried. He's been a disciple for a couple of years, and he feels like he called himself, I am, um, what's the full name? Ted, Ted Bundy. He calls himself Ted Bundy, serial killer. That's how he feels about himself, that I'm so sinful and so horrible, right? He's been doing it since he was 10. So I did a full background on him. And one of the things I just started planting in his mind, you, you think this is a sexual thing, and it is a sexual thing. However, you've been dealing with anxiety since you were a kid. I think this is more of an anxiety thing. So how about we talk about treating your anxiety? So while he was seeing me, he, um, he, we put together a really good plan. And unfortunately, we won't be able to go over that plan today. It is recorded, though, and you can listen to it on how to put together a really good plan for how what to do so that you don't end up using pornography. Having a really good, what I call an action plan is vital. So we had finally, he said, I tried everything, I tried everything, and I always laugh and people say, I don't laugh at them, I kind of laugh inside, because I know that they've never had anybody really take them through. That's where a therapist or someone who specializes in addiction can really help. So I took him through some really specific things, he put together a great plan, and he was doing well. And then he had a night where he went ahead and used pornography. And so he came into my office and I said, you know, so he shared it with me, super open, super open. This is a really a young man who wants to love Jesus. Shared it with me immediately. He had already told all the brothers in his life. He doesn't hide it. And he didn't want to do it, but then he did want to do it, and then he didn't. So he comes in and everybody's telling him what he should do and not do. And I said, I have a question for you. What happened that day? And he's like, um, he's a college student. He was like, well, uh, da, 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 this happened, this happened. And then I got an email. And it was so funny watching his brain. He goes, I got an email. And it had, it was about my class. And it had my grade on it. And it made me realize that it was possible I was going to fail my class. And then I went on the internet and looked at pornography. And I said, you know, I don't think this is about sex. I think this is about anxiety. So let's work on your anxiety. Yes, so that you don't continue to destroy your life by looking at porn. And now he was dating and he was getting ready to get engaged. And, you know, the consequences were getting larger and larger, right? We can help change these patterns. But 10, year, 12 years at this point, right? So one of the things we've talked about is it's going to take you probably another 12 years to retrain your brain. But if you're willing to do the work, the first year is going to be like hell. The second and third year, you're going to start feeling a little more stable. 
This is just my training on addiction. Early recovery is first to three years. Relapse is super common in the first year. Three to five years is what you call middle recovery. Five years plus is maintenance. So you need to work hard. For, and he was like, I will do it. And I said, you probably need to see me during the majority of that time to help you stay with that, right? He's awesome. He doesn't have a cell phone. He doesn't have a smartphone anymore. He doesn't have a computer anymore. He doesn't have the passwords to his wife's computer. He's now married. Um, he's been really radical. So our plan that we put in practice was a part of, of that. But honestly, the big thing that he's been working on is changing his view of himself from Ted Bundy to a child of God. So we have to deal with the understuff, right? His anxiety, his view of himself, and what to do to keep yourself away from that, that stuff. So we have to do a better job of teaching these other pieces in order to save themselves. Um, know their world. When it comes to even same-sex attraction, this is what they're watching. The Matthew Vines video, he's a young man who's same-sex, who's um, a gay man who believes you can be gay and be a Christian. They all, if you ask them, they'll go, oh, yeah, I know about the Matthew Vines video. I actually wrote an article that we <laughs> haven't posted yet. I'm so bad. It's called an apologetic response to the gay Christian debate, and it's going to go on Guy's website. Do we know how to answer those questions, right? Um, this is the book that's out. This is the title of a book written by a female pastor. Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option. One of the questions I got in L.A., I taught about 500 women in L.A. Uh, our, uh, at church, and uh, one of the questions from one of the women there in the audience was, if I love somebody and God is love, why is it wrong to have sex with them? It makes no sense to me. This is, and if we scoff at that, oh my gosh, this is what, and we just slam their, their question instead of, that's a great question. Let's talk about that. Because there's books out there saying, if you love them, go ahead. That book says that. I mean, maybe not quite in that blunt of language, but basically that is the premise of the book. Answer their questions. You know that song, all you need is love. We grew up with that song. Well, those of you my age, if you don't know it, oh well, sorry. <laughs> we heard those messages. They are hearing those messages right now that if you just love and you're okay, how equipped do you feel to answer those questions? It's really vital. Know their world. Know what they're hearing, know what they're reading. It's a little hard to because the world now is so big because of the internet, right? My son the other day, he goes, Mom, do you know about, and he was telling me stuff. I'm like, I don't even want to know about that. At the same, I had to stop myself, and I'm like, huh, tell me about it. And it wasn't necessarily something I particularly wanted to know about, but it's his world. And we ended up having a really good conversation about it. I was like, I can't believe I'm in this conversation. Again, openness. Uh, we already did this. Uh, yep. Okay, sorry. Um, we already did this. So, we already did this. Sorry about that. Wow, I did a bad job. I added scriptures without slides without even realizing I was doubling. This is the action plan that I give them. Uh, accept the arousal. So this is the, oh, wow, this is my body responding. 
then pull in what I call, this is from the work of Yarhouse, who um, works with same-sex attraction, but I apply it to all um, sexual responses. Pull in your valuative framework. So your body responds a certain way. You go, oh, that's cool. God made my body. So we just had a bunch of girls yell out last night, my vagina is awesome. And it is. So, so having a my body is so cool that God made this. And now what am I going to do with it? Because of my values. What are my beliefs? And then know ahead of time, who are you? Who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? Do you have an idea? Who's your support person? And don't just wait until you've blown it and hit the button for pornography. Plan this ahead of time so that when you're in a week where you have finals that week and you're stressed, who are you going to call ahead of time? Before you even feel the pull to go do pornography, you know that that situation is a tough time for you. Get help ahead of time for the anxiety so that then when the pull comes to hit that button for porn, you're, you're, you've got more support underneath you to make a really good decision. Who are you going to call? Do you need distractions? So this young man, um, same young man, when he first came and saw me, he, again, he had never had more than a month. And it had been a while since he'd even had a month with no uh, porn. And so he, I told him, this is, a, this is actually a specific type of intervention um, from my own training. I had more fun putting this into practice. I said, so, and I've done this a couple different times with young single people in my office. I said, if you, the next time, you, like tonight, tomorrow, when you want to do uh, pornography, masturbate to pornography, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to the store and buy a box of cereal and then take the cereal to a friend. Knock on their door, no matter what time it is. Knock on their door, hand them the cereal. You don't need to tell them why. And then you can go home and masturbate and watch porn. He was like, okay. Now, I made him promise to do it before he even knew what I was going to ask him. My first words were, I want to ask you something. Do you promise to do it? He was like, well, what are you going to ask me? I said, nope. I want you to promise you're going to do it before I even tell you what it is. He was like, okay. So then I told him this, and he was still like, okay. So he came to see me two weeks later. Mind you, this is just an initial intervention. And I said, you know, how are you doing? He said, well, I mean, I, I haven't done, you know, any porn. But, well, the reality is, I mean, I wanted to, but I was like, I'm too tired to go to the store. <laughs> and I had promised you I wasn't going to unless I took the box of cereal over. So I was like, okay, fine, I won't. It's called a distraction. It's, called, it's actually called a kick in your pants um, in the field of marriage and family therapy where you do a just kind of a different type of you know, way to get them not to do something. Guy Hammond actually says that when he feels pulled, he does the wild and crazy guy. He literally stands up and goes, the Steve Martin wild and crazy guy. Um, the woman who wrote um, Prodigal Pursued, she lived a lesbian lifestyle for 25 years, and she's lived as a um, um, non-acting out, same-sex attracted woman for the last six she wrote a book called Prodigal Pursuit. It's not very well written, but she's very heartsy. She's almost like, in the religious world, a female Guy Hammond. Really amazing writing. And she talks about how she cannot think straight at first. When she feels the pull, she can't go, I'm going to think of a scripture. She's like, I, I, I can't go there. She goes, I'll look at a lamp and go, 
Those lights are yellow. The color against the wall is kind of an off-white. That painting is an off-white. The trees are, ooh, there's some orange and red. She'll go to physical objects and describe them in her head. Then she can go to the spiritual. So distraction is a part of the process. It's only a part, but it will sometimes initially stop the immediate acting out because the brain has gone there so quickly for so long. So yes, distraction's useful. Um, and then another small intervention was actually uh, for young people uh, reading real sex. It's for people that are single um, from a Christian perspective about sexuality. And she has this lovely part where she talks about having these young women journal to their future spouse. So there's all kinds of different things to help people make good choices in their sexuality. I think, again, the main thing is we just have to, number one, talk about it openly and then help them have a really specific plan. They probably shouldn't come up with that plan with you. If you have the kind of relationship where you're the person that they come up with the plan, great. Sometimes, though, they need to do it like with their teen leader, with their campus leader, with the, you know, someone else other than you, but they need a pretty specific plan. If it's gotten where it's long-term use, they're going to need a little bit more help than that. Um, usually. So, okay, let me go to, I already did that. Uh, if, if they're talking about same-sex attraction, make sure that it is open and honest. I'm gonna, how are we doing on time? It is, okay, we're gonna open up for questions in a bit. So, my computer is not letting me move forward. So, ignore the next couple slides. Don't look, don't look, you'll feel really mad. Okay, this is the book's uh, this is the book set of four, God's Design for Sex. They're really great. They're from a Christian perspective. If you don't know of them, and if you have younger children or grade school age children, this is a great place to start. God's Design for Sex. And we love the book. It's so amazing. <laughs> it's a book on the physiology of how babies are made. And they have the part where the, the, the penis goes in the vagina and sends the sperm up to the eggs. The sperm are all racing. They're like, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you. And the egg is up there spraying herself with perfume. <laughs> so it's really a delightful book. It does have pages that we wouldn't agree with as far as belief systems. It's not a Christian book. And so I just took them out. I just cut them out. Um, so you can do that. Always check out any materials that you're going to use. Check them out. And and use them appropriately. And then our book and then Guy's book. This is just a little thing on what ages you would typically use all of these books. We recommend our book um, for parents from birth, for kids from about 12 on. So that's redeemed sexuality. Um, yeah, and there's the other books. Jones, Nystrom and Jones, those are all the God's plan for sexuality. So let me just share with you some do's and don'ts. Kind of to wrap some of these pieces up. Don't shame their sexual exploration. Don't reject, punish, be dismissive, ridicule. Make sure that there's not taboos about speaking about sex. And don't have rigid gender stereotypes. Do have physical affection in your family. Do have realistic explanations for the sensual feelings they have. Do talk openly and completely, and then do model 
satisfying sexuality, how to have great conversations with your kids. They are watching movies. Um, years ago, Mean Girls came out, and oh my, I did not like that movie. And my daughter wanted to watch it. I'm like, we are not watching that movie. That movie is junk. She kept asking, Mom, Mom, all my friends have watched it. <laughs> I'm so bad. I'm like, okay. We actually, had, oh, she was in middle school at the time. We had the entire middle school girls ministry over. And I gave them, <laughs> I gave them scriptures on gossip, on, of course, joking, a bunch, about 10 or 12 different scriptures. So we watched the movie, and every time one of those things happened, them, they had to raise their hand and mention it, and we would look, okay, which scripture is it? And then we'd go on, we watched the whole movie. It was awesome! <laughs> Watch things with them. When our kids would ask, this was when it was iPods, now it's all on their phone, but they wanted to have all this music, and when they were young enough where we still had, because we gave them age-appropriately more control over their phones when they were trustworthy, but when they were younger and they were first learning, we said you couldn't put any songs on your on your um, iPad on your phone until we've seen the lyrics. So <laughs> we would have them print out the lyrics, and then we would just. <laughs> my daughter was like, "Mom, I don't even know what that word means, and now I do." And I'm like, "Well, you do, and you were singing it without knowing what it means. So I just want you to know so that you can be educated about whether that song should be on your phone." Um, so knowing their world and having great conversations about their movies, their music, their books that they're reading. My, my sixth grade, my daughter's sixth grade teacher sent home a list of books for sixth grade girls. And I was like, okay. So I went with her to the Barnes and Noble and we sat on the floor and pulled a bunch of them out and thumbed through them together. And I was like, what do you think about this? And we just did it together. And her heart was pounding. And he lay on top of her. And she was thinking this. And I'm like, I don't know. What do you think about this? And she goes, yeah, no. So you can explore it with them. Not in a, we're not reading that. But just look at it together and make decisions together. Where it's a mother-daughter, father-son approach is hugely helpful. Know their world. What are they seeing on the internet? I did put it in here. These are the questions they've brought up. Your kids' ages. These are all uh, teens and campus students. Why can't we touch our body if we're not arousing others? It's our body anyway. It's only our body anyway. Is masturbation a healthy outlet since the Bible doesn't say anything about it? Great question. Is it okay for me to have the urge to masturbate? How do I resist the temptation to fantasize? Am I sinful if I dream about having sex, even though I'm not having sex? Is it sinful? How do I deal with the fact that I feel validated when others find me physically attractive? I started doing pornography as a 14-year-old and then had early experiences of sex. How do I correct the thoughts that still go through my head? How do we get away from doing pornography when each time I keep saying it's the last time? How do I talk to my parents about sex? What is the best conversation opener about same-gender sex when talking to parents? That was from a kid. I know the Bible teaches we're not supposed to have sex until we're married. I did, though, and I still feel guilty in God. What should I do? Is homosexuality caused by negative experiences? If we had a negative sexual experience before, how would we change our perspective about sex? I was sexually abused, and in the past, whenever I had sex, my body froze. How will I deal with that in marriage? So they, they're asking about their future relationships. They want, they're worried. 
Is it normal to get wet from kissing and making out? Okay, what is that? That's the vaginal response to arousal. So talking about that is important. I believe in liberal sex. This was the gal. Sex is natural, so do it with love and responsibility. Why is this wrong? My spouse left me. This is actually from a parent, and I didn't realize I kept that in there. When my kids are gone, who's going to meet my physical needs for hugs? This is, you know, she's now single. If someone was sexually active before becoming a Christian but no longer experiences urges for sex since, is that normal? So this is someone's worried. I've stopped doing it. Does that mean it's going to come back? If arousal is considered natural, how do you make sure that it's guided by God? Okay, Jennifer, you just talked about the throbbing vagina and the, and the penis being controlled by the lower spine, but how do I make sure I'm not falling into temptation? Is it wrong if I stop myself from falling into temptation by saying to myself that if I do it, something bad will happen to me? The answer is no, that's not how you want to do it. That's a long explanation that you can read in our book. If I successfully control my sexual, I love this one, my sexual desire for a good amount of time, is it possible that I will lose my sexual desire forever? And the actual note was written with capitals on the word forever. These are just some of the hundreds of questions we've gotten. It's actually the longest chapter in our, our book, and I'm not going to answer them tonight, today, but the reason I put them in this presentation is your kids have these questions. So people always ask me, well, my kid's now 13, and they're like, I'm not talking about it. You know, it's really fascinating what they will if you kind of figure out how to slide it in there. Um, we have a, a chapter that's, this was my favorite chapter. It's called What's a Teen to Do? And I had, at the time, I had two teenagers still at home when I was writing it, and I was like, I mean, I do this as a living, but I'm not a teenager, so I I, I kept, it was the last chapter I wrote of the whole book because I was like, I don't know how to write this chapter. And all of a sudden, I thought, I don't have to write it. I'm going to go ask. So I went and interviewed nine different of your brothers and sisters who are between the ages of 19 and 26 who had been teens and asked them, what was it like for you at school, at home, and at church during those years? And that's the chapter. It was my favorite. I interviewed them. I recorded their interviews, and I typed them all up. And their words, you can start there. If you're not sure how to have the conversation, go read someone else's words and say, so is that what it's been like for you? There is stuff in there um, also from the LGBT background of one of the women who lived as a lesbian during those years and then into college and what she heard and didn't hear and so on. So it's quite the spectrum. And then uh, the longest chapter is the chapter on these questions. And what was really lovely about this is I told them all, I can't answer all your questions because we were at various workshops all over. And so I told them, <laughs> they're going to they're gonna come. I actually put them on the internet first. I, um, I, oh, so the other thing you can do is I have a website called The Art of Intimate Marriage. All of these questions are answered by, by I'm speaking to the questions. Um, and it's... Um, they're literally labeled questions that singles have, is what it says, but it's actually singles campus questions. And so you can listen to it as well and not have to buy anything. So this is what they did. And um, the thing is, though, <sighs> raising kids is challenging. And this is God's heart about it. 
In Isaiah 40, he says, he gently leads those that have young. God's super compassionate about how challenging this is. I mean, I love this scripture. It shows his heart for us. He's like, this is hard, and I will gently lead you. So I end with this, as far as my portion, just to encourage you that um, God is a compassionate God, and he feels with us as we go through this. So I would love to open this up to questions. How much time do we have? Oh, wonderful. So um, feel free about anything we've talked about today or anything that we didn't talk to about today that's more specific to a concern or a wondering that you have. So any kind of questions. This has been an episode of the New England Youth and Family Parents Podcast. Please subscribe so you can stay up to date with the latest episodes.